I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull or with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up all the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Those are verses 30 to 36 of Psalm 69, which is the psalm appointed for today, Friday, February the 4th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being with me today. We're continuing our look at the Messianic prophecies of Isaiah. Today we're in the 56th chapter, the first eight verses. Also continuing our study of uh, the epistle to the church in Galatia, chapter 5, verses 16 to 24, and then in Mark's gospel, chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. So we've, we've seen the, the sort of the beatific and blessed vision that Isaiah has for when, it looks like when the people will be restored, but, that, but the fullness of that awaits and this is the sort of the in the same way that Abraham had one child of the promise who then became the father of another who then became a father of two and then on and on from there and so but the promise was that his descendants would be as countless as the stars in the heavens and the sand of the seashore and so when we see these visions that Isaiah has we know that they were not ultimately fulfilled when the people return from the exile in Babylon, the fullness of the revelation awaits the coming again of Jesus and the establishment permanently of God's eternal kingdom. So here in Isaiah 56, we have, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. So the we they're enjoined, just as we are enjoined, to continue to pursue justice and righteousness. We're, we're to do those things, and Jesus tells all these parables of uh, kings or rich men going away and leaving servants in charge, and, and that they need to make good use of the time. So the waiting is never just sitting around twiddling your fingers. No, it's, it's actually using that time to do the things we've been given to do. We have plenty to do. We have the work of the kingdom to do. And the work of the kingdom is never exhausted, right? I mean, it's not exhausted in our own lives, seeing it established, nor is it exhausted in those whom we have been given influence over, like our children, our families, the people that we work with. We have, we have an obligation to him who has saved us in order to display his kingdom and show the blessedness of what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. So it's the work that we're to do, and then in the fullness of time, his righteousness will be revealed. It was revealed in Christ Jesus, but ultimately it will be revealed in all the earth in the coming again. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. And I, you know, I think personally... This is something that God's been saying to me for a long time, and I, and I give it lip service, but I haven't really done what's required of me to, to think about what does it mean to keep the Sabbath, and is it still important to God? Did it somehow become unimportant in the same way that don't murder, don't commit adultery? Those didn't become less important, but the Sabbath did. 
I mean, I think we've lost any sense of, of that because we've been too busy doing the things that we want to do on the Sabbath. And, and I think the Lord is calling us to, to be those people who do keep the Sabbath. We admire um, Chick-fil-A and their commitment to keeping Sabbath, right, and, and taking the day off and all that kind of stuff and making sure that they don't they don't violate that by making money on the Sabbath. And, and yet, do as much as we might admire that, how do we apply that in our own lives? I think it's an important question. It's going to come up again and again in these few verses today. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And so when he's joined himself to the Lord, that means that he has joined himself to the Lord's people as well. So he's made a decision to become a part of the covenant community. Don't let the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And that that last piece, the everlasting name that shall not be cut off, I mean, their name, the eunuch, the name of the eunuch will be lost because they're unable to reproduce because they've been emasculated. And so something was cut off. So there's a there's a parallelism that's being used in there that by Isaiah to to uh, say that that eunuchs too which who are forbidden in the house of God there they will be given an everlasting name if they keep the Sabbath and choose the things that please me, is what he says, and hold fast to the covenant. So it's it's fascinating then that one of the very first converts that we see in the New Testament is the Ethiopian eunuch that Philip is taken to, and he baptizes him in the name of the Lord Jesus into the covenant. He can't be circumcised. That's already, well. So the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his strength, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and everyone who doesn't profane it and holds fast my covenant these i will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer so these are the ones who have not made themselves they've not circumcised themselves and so what he's saying is is that if you do all the things if you uh, join yourself to the lord you're his servant you keep the sabbath you don't profane it you hold fast to the covenant again that's that same language for the eunuch then these i'll bring to the holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. And that's exactly what Jesus does, and it's exactly what the church is sent to do. It's to gather those who are not of that flock who will be gathered into the flock, as Jesus says. So he, he said he had these others that had to be brought in. Well, that's us, the Gentiles. And so it's our job and our joy then to go out and proclaim that same truth and to bring others in as well, to be part of God's in-gathering. You know, that's the thing is, is that, that don't think that, that evangelism rises and falls based on your ability to do it well, because ultimately it's the power and the Spirit of God working within that person that draws him to, to God. So it's God's work, and, and we just get to participate if we choose to. But it's important for us to choose to, because that way we do get to have the joy of our master in doing that. Because that applies to that parable of the ten talents, the five talents, and the one talent. Is they were the, the ones who had the ten and the five who doubled the, the investment were those who were invited to join into the joy of their master. 
And so that's exactly what we are invited to do in the work of evangelism, and that's exactly why we should be doing it, is because that, that, that invites us to enter his joy when we see people saved. In the gospel today, Jesus um, gets away, finally. <laughs> he gets away with the three disciples that he seems always to get away with, Peter, James, and John, and they, so they go up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. He, became a, he, was, he was revealed to them in that way, that things were changed. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. This is the glory of the Lord shining through Jesus. The, so the veil, essentially, that kept hidden his, um, the fact that he was God, his glory, the veil that was over his glory in this earthly form, was essentially removed, and so the glory of the Lord shines through <coughs> and transfigures everything that it touches. So they see his glory. The glory is of the one and only, John says in his gospel. And when it happens, there, there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, do, do they know that it are, it's Elijah and Moses? How do they know that? You know, that, that It's not like there are pictures and paintings of these guys. So how do they know this? Well, it, probably part of the conversation makes that clear. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, so he, he's calling him teacher now. He had referred to him, remember, just before this, he had confessed that he was the Christ. Now he says, Rabbi. And what does a rabbi do? Well, the rabbi teaches the, the words of the law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. And so rabbi is the one who, who sort of brings those words to life and teaches those words. And, and that's exactly the way here that Peter refers to him as rabbi. It essentially sets Moses and Elijah above Jesus because the rabbi doesn't have the word, his own word. He's interpreting the words of, of the law and the prophets. He says, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he, he's not sure how to do this or what to say. And that's what it says, for he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So you were mistaken, Peter. Like I said, a rabbi's work is to interpret the words and the teachings of others. And instead, here at the end of this passage, God says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And then they see who is his son was the only one left, and that would be Jesus. And so you had it right before when you said he was the Christ, Peter, here, Rabbi diminished him at some level. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had heard or seen until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Well, Jesus had just said this after he rebuked Peter. He called the disciples and the crowd to him and explained that all these things would happen, and then he would rise from the dead after three days. And, and, and they still, they believe in the resurrection. We know they believe in the resurrection. He called those who did. He didn't call Sadducees. So why are they questioning what it means for him to rise from the dead? They had no earthly idea what was getting ready to happen. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Why didn't they ask, what do you mean by the rising from the dead? Now they're more interested in why do the scribes say 
Elijah must first come. Well, it's in Malachi would be the reason the scribes would say it. It says that Elijah must first come, and he says Elijah does come first to restore all things. So he validates the testimony and the prophecy of Malachi that says Elijah comes and then the Messiah. And how is it written, Jesus asked, the son of, of the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? And so he's answering the question that was unasked up there, and that is, is that why does it say these things? And that is not a Jewish way of interpreting the prophecies, actually. It's there, but that's not their way of looking at it, and that's much the reason that they still don't come to him today in the same way. That they that this dying Messiah idea is is utterly wrong. That's what that was Paul's whole argument was is that this this isn't true. He's not the Messiah. He was crucified on a cross, which disqualifies him because he was accursed by hanging him on a tree. He said, "I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him." So Elijah's job was to, to restore things, which, and what he means is that turns the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. And what Elijah did in the form of John the Baptist, and when I say Elijah in the form of John the Baptist, I don't mean that it's the spirit of Elijah in John the Baptist. I mean that John the Baptist was a unique individual whose job it was to, to fulfill the prophecy that this Elijah figure would come. And so he, that's the work that John did. It's the same work that Elijah did, which is to turn the people away from idol worship and to the true and living God. In the epistle today, Paul says, I I, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's, you know, it's a powerful statement. And the thing goes on to say the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. So there's this war within. It's the same war within that he speaks of in Romans 7 when he talks about the the things I want to do, I do not do, and the things that I don't want to do are the very things that I do. And he's, he's talking about the war of the spirit against the flesh, that that, that these are the things that he's, it's speaking about the fallenness of of man, that we would we know through the spirit what the right thing to do is, but too often we do and gratify the desires of the flesh, which was exactly what Eve did in the beginning. That first sin was 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 to go against the will of God, the Word of God, and to gratify the desires of the flesh, because that fruit, we see, was pleasing to the eye, it was good to the taste, and it was desirable to make one wise, and so she lived at the level of the desires of the flesh and took it, and that was sin. And, and that's the way too often everything works. As far as sin is concerned, we're tempted by the desire that's in our flesh to have something that we know God has said we shouldn't have. He said, these two things, are uh, the spirit and the flesh, are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So the, the spirit is there as a check against sinful behavior, and sinful behavior is there as a check against the spirit. So even if you want to do the right things, your flesh stands as a check against it because the flesh wants what it wants. He said, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So the condemnation is not there. And certainly if you follow the Spirit, then it will not lead you out of conformity with the law. So those two things are, are not opposed to one another. The Spirit will lead you into conformity with the will of God. And the will of God is exactly the same thing as it was in the Old Testament. It's just there's even a greater 
responsibility than that. And, and you can, and Jesus would, you know, he would be criticized for, for failing to keep the law in things like healing on the Sabbath or the way that his disciples broke apart the husk from the grain so that they could eat the grain or didn't wash their hands right and all that kind of stuff. And so that Paul says, no, you've got the Spirit so that you can, you can be obedient and pleasing to God in that way, in, in ways that transcend the strict observance of the law. He said, now the works of the flesh are evident. So if you want to know, he says, what the difference is between spirit and flesh, here you go. I'm going to give you a list. And it's not intended to be comprehensive, but it is intended to be something that would be convicting. He says, here here are the things. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's, that's a, not too many people in the church or outside the church would look at that and go, yep, it would be best if you avoided all those things, not anymore with respect to things like sexual immorality, because we can't even determine what that is. Sensuality, nah, you know what, porn's not a problem, right? So, I mean, that's literally, there are things in the world where, where we've decided, no, those things are actually not problems, even though they have been problems in the world for uh, millennia. And now we're, we're moving to a place where these things are okay. They, they don't harm anybody. He said, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the, the bottom line is, is that it's the same thing when the man asks Jesus, the rich young ruler asks, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus gives him a list of things that, he, that he's not supposed to do. And he said, I've done all those things since I was a kid. Um, and then he goes on to say, well, then here, here's the one thing you lack is go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. In other words, there's something that has a prior claim on your life, and it's your earthly inheritance. And unless you get rid of that earthly inheritance, then you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul says the same here. He says, unless you give up these things, walk away from these things, and see them as they are in the eyes of God, unless you see things that way and walk away from these things, then you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's a strong word. It's a true word, though, because to, to crucify the flesh is to live from the Spirit. And we've been given the Spirit for exactly that reason, that we can put to death those things of the flesh which are not pleasing to God. And we've been given the ability to choose those things which are pleasing to him. And Paul says, so it's easy to tell whether you're living by the Spirit or not. He says, you won't be doing these things, and you'll experience the fruits that I've just given you.